Welcome to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. And I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're with a football journalist who has broken some of the biggest stories of recent times, the European Super League among them, and whose curiosity about the way football fits together and detailed research into football's various underbellies has led him to the heart of the modern game and, and not necessarily the good bits. This week for Book Club, we're talking to Tarek Panja about football's secret trade. He's one of the best players in the world, one of the best strikers in world football. They're valuable commodities. Every club this summer wants to sign Erling Haaland. Sancho will be allowed to leave under a gentleman's agreement and provided certain conditions are met. In Football's Secret Trade, Tarek and his co-writer Alex Duff dig into the hidden world of player transfer rights and explain how this affects the lives of talented footballers everywhere in the world and the clubs we all support. The story takes him from South America to North London and back again and explains why transfers cost so much and where all the money goes. For this episode of Book Club, we're speaking with Tarek Panja about Football's Secret Trade. Tarek, thank you so much for coming in to chat to Jim and me. My pleasure. Hopefully it will be a, a clear path through this sort of murky little world. <laughs> We're ex- I don't know how clear it can be, but yeah. I'm excited to hear all of the background to, to some of the things that we've been pouring through over the last week or so. Uh, and we're really looking forward to hearing as well about things you've been working on since the book came out. But let's, let's dig into this secret trade to get started. Um, almost all Ramble listeners will remember the amazing signing of Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano at West Ham. Can we start by trying to explain this features heavily in your book and, mm. and, and how that how that would have come to pass? It was a remarkable story. We, we all remember it. And I think when we talk about transfers as well in general, um, I think we'd all agree perhaps the most um, red aspect of the game, sometimes what's happening in the transfer market fuels the excitement around the game more mm. than um, what's happening on the field often. Mm. You see like most read articles in newspapers often it's it's who's signing who a bit of fantasy there. Yeah. And and that summer's day in in 2006 at at West Ham there's um under the sunlight there's Alan Pardew and two of the most sought after players on the planet at the time. Carlos Tevez and Javier Mascherano everyone's wondering how has that happened. And and how it happened is 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 this um these these guys arrived from Corinthians one of Brazil's biggest clubs at the time that club was controlled by a group called Media Sports Investments the front man who we've all come to to know maybe not love but come to know uh Kia Jurabchin mm-hmm. um super agent extraordinaire etc he he and his business partners who turns out were two Russian oligarchs Boris Berezovsky, um, dissident based in, in London, a big opponent of Vladimir Putin and his, his Georgian business partner, a guy called Badri Padakashvili. They had lots of money and they were told, why don't you, why don't you invest in, in footballers? So they did. They went with Kia and they invested in this club, Corinthians. The thing with Corinthians is that it's fan-owned. You can't buy it. So what they'd like Barcelona or Real Madrid, you can't. No single guy can buy it. What they did is they signed a 10-year contract and they said, look, we're going to pump this money in. Okay, we can't own it. But the money that we put in, we can make the, we can extract the profits. And the best way of extracting profits out of football, most of the world, is selling football players. So they, they got some of the best talent from around South America at relatively cheap prices. So they're taking a punt. Mm. So they got 
Tevez and Mascherano from Argentina, from Boca and River Plate, respectively, took them to Corinthians. And then they did really well. They did extremely well there. Tevez in particular was was a star. Well, he was like the most sought after player at that time. Yeah, well, yeah. at the time of the Alan Pardew photo. Yeah, yeah. So you 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 look at the you look at the headlines around that period. And it was Real Madrid. Tevez was going to Real Madrid, sixty millions, etc. And you know, mm. obviously, we sit here in in twenty twenty one, and sixty million is now a Man City left back or something, but. 60 million then was a huge amount of money. Especially to go to a South American team. A- absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be like 500 million now. Yeah. Going it's, there. It's, it's a like big, it's big amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, only in recent times has, has the quantum of money going to South America changed. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so all these all these rumours in the various back pages, depending what country you're in, where, where they're, where they're going to go, particularly Tevez. And suddenly they pitch up in East London. Um what he's done, he couldn't get. He didn't, couldn't get the fee he wanted. It seemed, despite you know planting the stories about this guy, everyone wanting him. Because that's another way of kind of drumming up business for your client. You, you get different stories in different papers. You start a bit of a bidding war. The number they felt wasn't right, and what they did was something that often happens in South America. They found somewhere to park them, um, a glorified shop window, if you would. And there isn't anything better as a shop window than the Premier League, the world's most mm. watched league, extremely popular. If Tevez, Mascherano do well there, the world is their oyster and it is worth huge amounts of profit for, for those guys. So that's what happened. Mm. They sign a contract with West Ham, which essentially putting these players there for free. However, the fine print of this contract meant that when we decide we can pull them out and you have to sell them to, to where we say. Which uh, is yeah. against the rules, is it not? And it was against the rules then as well. <laughs> yeah. But they that, 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 that was, it was a huge scandal in the Premier League. Um, I remember um, Richard Scudamore used to run the Premier League. He, he was just wondering, he went to, he, he said, I want to know how this has happened. And he went to, went to West Ham um, and he spoke to, 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 to the folks there. I think Scott Duxbury is now at Watford. said, look, Look, everything's above board. It's all fine. Um, and if you talk to Richard Scudamore, he's been on the record about this. He said, West Ham lied to us. This was not above board. And the thing that made it worse, this was perhaps the biggest crisis in, in Premier League history. And I think even now, Premier League started in 1992 and we sit, we sit here now. I would still arguably say that it, it is because what happened on the field you know, it takes a bit of our, uh, our memories to get. So much has happened in football since then. But that season, Tevez didn't start very well at all. Um, West Ham were struggling. They were falling down the league. They looked dead certs for relegation. And then suddenly, I think seven games in a row, right at the end, Tevez scores in every single match, including an away match at Old Trafford after Manchester United already won the league. Yeah. And West Ham stay up thanks to the goals of, of this guy, Carlos Tevez. And then it turns out he shouldn't have been on the field at all. Sheffield United was the team that got relegated that year, or the, the, the last team that got relegated that year. And, you know, they screamed blue murder because they've been done out of a place in the Premier League, which is, on a, from a sporting level, just, just really upsetting, isn't it? You know, for your fans and mm. for your players, etc. You've toiled that season and you feel you should be there. Mm. And then from a financial perspective, that's tens of millions of pounds that have just disappeared. So they sued, and there was arbitration, etc. What ended up happening 
was West Ham ended up being fined, I think, a certain amount of money. I think it was 5.5 million. And then a further high court case that Sheffield United bought that ended up with West Ham owing them 25 million. That had to be paid over a certain amount of time. So, yeah, Sheffield United got got the money that they that they wanted to, but it left a really, really nasty taste. It gave us a, a window into, you know, another aspect of football, third party ownership, where where investors buy bits of footballers hope, hoping to profit from this, you know, multi billion pound market. Mm. And I, you, as you say, this story was a long time ago. We don't really think about it now. And what's intriguing about the book is that Actually, it's it's a really common thing, and this was just just a little bit of an insight into it that we wouldn't normally get. But this this has been happening for a long time all over the world. The transfer market is this is a huge huge part of it. And I guess, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Tarek, but an overview of it would be just to try and explain it would be that groups of groups of investors essentially set up funds that sit in the same space as, as banks to provide credit for clubs. Those funds then buy a stake in the future transfer fee of a player. Then when that player moves on, they make a big profit, essentially, meaning that a lot of the money we see for transfer fees is actually flowing out of the game. You know, if you see if a you know a club buy a player or sell a player for 60 million pounds, you think brilliant, they've got 60 million quid. But no, they haven't, because a lot of that money has been earmarked elsewhere already in advance. Is, is that is that a of, fair description of, of, of how, how a lot it was, of it works? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's how that's how it definitely worked. Then, it, but the thing is, it, you know, it, it originated in South America, mm. and things aren't as formal as you describe. You mentioned funds, etc. Um, you know, I spent a few years living in, in Brazil, so I had a, got an idea of the kind of marketplace for footballers that that places and the financial environment the teams operate in. It's chaos, absolute chaos there as yeah, well. You talk about how. Waiters and and, yeah, and taxi drivers. Taxi drivers own, own stakes in players in some cases. Players too own stakes Other in their own, own in their own in their own contracts, etc. Right. And at, at a time, I remember asking um, a few people, and this was the number I got back. They said ninety percent of first division players, so in the Brasileirao Serie A, at the time, had some element of investment in their contracts. That's so hundreds of football players yeah. potentially are. Our, our investment vehicle. So, if you like talking about investing in any other commodity, coffee, coal, whatever, these players were earmarked as a commodity that people could invest in with the hope of making a profit should they be traded, etc. And this was commonplace. When you have the thing with something that happens a lot, it becomes normal. And when something becomes normal, no one thinks anything about it. So, in Brazil, yeah, it was just so laissez-faire that it's so commonplace. That there will be an investor, you'll raise some money, they'll move players around, and there wasn't often that kind of affiliation, the player to the club, etc. They always dreamed of playing for the big teams like Flamengo or, or Corinthians or, or whoever Palmeiras, but they're on the move all the time. This kind of carousel of football players moving around, and the clubs were so kind of cash poor financially. That they were always looking at the next next person who could put a bit of money in and would give away five percent here, ten percent there, twenty percent. But here. is it so surprising? I mean, it's not surprising, really, is it? That like you you talk about commodities that are not humans, but given you know the value, the massive value of footballers in in the modern era and the time that you're describing in the book, it's not that surprising that people are trying to chop that value up and sell it. I, I think wherever there is money, it's not surprising at all because. This is what investors do. They look for opportunity 
to they'll see a marketplace. Look, can we get an edge here? Yeah, and often the investors are a lot smarter in football than the people running the clubs. You know, these are these are often at the higher end. These are kind of people who are financially literate, mm. etc. And they they know they can they have an edge over you know a poorly regulated industry. Um, what what the difference is though is I think football quickly became um, forgot what it was for. Because if you think what a football club's for or what a football player wants to do is to play this game, it's to win competitions, it's to make the crowd happy, it's to be a community entity and all these different things. But I think money has polluted the game to such an extent that it's just seen often as how do we make more money? How can we extract more money? And it's it's all the actors as well. It's, you know, agents, players, club owners, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's the, you know, the writing we see, the conversations we have about how much are they paying for him, uh, the the debt here, that there, the, the, the kind of, we've kind of lost the moorings a little bit of mm. what, what the game is. But yeah, it, like it is another commodity if you want it to be, but it didn't have to be this way, I don't think. Okay, so what would be great to hear would be about how you came you came to write this book because the really interesting thing to Jim and me is is thinking about you kind of traipsing around South America and having these conversations with particularly uh, Miguel Angel Gil. I'm not going to attempt to do that. Oh, he's in Spain. Yeah, I love that pronunciation as well. Um, But some of these people who are right at the heart of football and how. I guess how you, because you said to us beforehand that, you know, it's a bit of a slog piecing together a book like this. I'm not sure if slog was the term you used, but you know what I mean? It's, uh, it's a lot of information. It was it, a lot. It's it's a difficult subject that's complex. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a ball ache, right? It was complex. It's a complex topic. And then also, you know, you're trying to make it really sing for a, an audience like us who aren't um, literate in these types of things. Yeah. Uh, just give Alex Duff, co-write a lot of credit for this, to be honest as well. We, we were at Bloomberg together, and that helped as well. Um, it's a financial news agency, and just anyone working there, you become, you have to, you're forced to become financially literate yourself, learn balance sheets, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we we um, we wrote stories that linked the, the world of finance to sport for, for, our, for our day jobs over there, as well as, well as the sports side. So that, that helped. And we alighted on this, this, this area. Um, around, I'd say, you know, I joined in 2008. I've been there for some time, but we kind of got into this um, around 2009, 10, after all, all this Tevez business as well. Mm. And it just seemed really fascinating. And our employers were were into it as well. I think that helps for any type of journalism if you get buy-in from wherever you are, because you could be in a different newsroom and they'll say, well, no, too complicated don't want to look into it and geographically it helped as well Alex was based in Madrid he'd lived in Brazil I was based in London which is you know the heart of European finance as well um well, it certainly was yeah yeah it was then <laughs> um and then we had the financial crash in 2008 as well so a lot of these these things that were sort of under the surface in general in in the financial market started to sort of seep to the top and and this was one of those one of those things the the financial arrangements of football clubs. Hmm. We did a piece with a guy who used to play for Manchester City. You might remember Ray Ranson. He played in a. I thought this was going to be some secret person. No, no, he, try he, work it out. He played, he played in a cup final. We did a magazine piece. Yeah. Um, 
on on this a longer article for for Business Week. Oh no, for Bloomberg Markets magazine. That's what it was at the time. And that's how we really dug into this in the beginning. And we we couldn't believe it ourselves. You know, we went to see Ray Ranton. He had an office in in Manchester City Centre, and he said he was running a fund about fifty million investing in 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 these players in Europe. And he had quantitative analysts, etc., and all these guys looking for value in the transfer market. And we were like, wow, I thought that's what clubs do, but there was this this dude. Um, and then Portuguese teams, they're listed on their stock exchange. And then football transfers are very, very secret because clubs are competing with each other. They want to show their hands. You very rarely, you'll see stories in the paper, X move for 50 million or on 200 grand a week. You don't see the paperwork often. So it's a bit of like, you know, finger in the air sometimes. Often accurate, sometimes not. But in Portugal, because they're listed, they have to say who is the investor in these players. We found all these murky companies and that kind of got us on a bit of a trail. Mm. Um, and and that article got a lot of um, reader interest. Mm. So we, we kind of kept going with that. And then in, in 2013, I moved to Brazil ahead of the World Cup um, mm. and the Olympics that were going to be placed there. So I was in Madrid. I'm in Brazil. We both know how the city works. And we were into it and thought, should we do it? And we, we um, found a publisher through through Bloomberg. We pitched it to them and they said, yes. Who knew it would take four years, though, to, to, to try and you know make head or tails of this thing? Do you feel like you did? In some ways, it's hard. It was, it was, it was, it was. It's really difficult because this is. There's a reason why these people are. They don't want to be seen. These companies often are offshore in jurisdictions: Jersey, Malta, Cayman Islands. These are. There's a reason why companies are based there because they don't want anyone to know what they're doing. Um, so that that was quite tricky. The 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 thing is we did manage in that time to get interesting contacts who you develop a bit of trust with and and happen to be in the right place at the right time to to try and tell the try and tell the tale of this and there were a couple of key transfers you talked about Tevez and Mascherano in terms of public interest there's also the Neymar his move from Brazil to Europe which was enormous and again that was stoked in Huge controversy, both in Brazil and Europe, with with people wondering how much was paid, who was paid, and and did I get my fair share because of that mm. many people involved. Wow. There, there is a sense in reading the book that, as a reader, you're not supposed to know this stuff. That you know that football is trying to hide it, and not actually even just football. The people that have snuck into football are trying to hide it, and that, that have you know attached themselves to it and are funneling money out of it for their own gains, and. Given how secretive a lot of these companies are and how a lot of the people involved are, how hard was it to get people to speak about it on the record? It was, it was extre- extremely difficult and in some cases, yeah. Um, and some of them are big personalities as well. So in the book, we we mention um, Peter Kenyon, the former chief executive of Chelsea and Man United, who's ended up setting up a, an investment fund with George Mendes, one of the other super agents that you, you probably read about in the paper every every transfer almost these Yeah, do we days. think he's mm. the most famous super agent? Pro- probably. Him and Pini Zahavi maybe? Yeah, he's maybe. Okay. Well. P- P- Pini, P- there's like eras. There's like, a, you know, you see like dominant eras of clubs. He's almost like dominant <laughs> eras of agents as well. In, the, in those early 2000s, 
late 90s, Pinny Zahavi was the monster agent. You yeah. know, he was involved in everything, bringing Roman Abramovich to Chelsea, for example, um, Rio Ferdinand's transfer from West Ham to Leeds United, big transfers. And then he's also behind the scenes in transfers nowadays mm. where, where other agents are doing the work. That's the other thing, how, how these guys are competitors, but often they'll partner up in stuff. And I'd say there are kind of five or six big, big agents. There's Pinny, Minoraola, of course. Ah, uh, yeah, maybe. Um, George Mendes is one. There is, um, was a guy in Italy, Giovanni Branchini, he was another one. Um, Jonathan Barnett. Jonathan Barnett. Oh, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Yeah. It's quite yeah. weird that we can name this many agents. Yeah. <laughs> But it's probably the first generation where we there are that many that you can list them off in this way. Yeah, like Eric Hall, you have known in the yeah. past. Monster, monster, yeah, exactly. Eric Hall. Yeah, but yeah. that was he was almost like a sort of like a cartoonish yeah. kind of like second hand second hand car salesman, wasn't he? It was very very different, and the reasons we knew him. But it's it's really fascinating. The, the other thing I found really surprising was how little the governing bodies knew. Not that they didn't care, um, particularly UEFA. I remember. Um, talking to Gianni Infantino, I think, in 2014 or 15 or some, something like that around this. And at the stairs, there was, some, there was an event at UEFA, talking to him on the stairs, and he was, um, I said, I'm going to have a quick chat, mention this to him, and he was a, a little bit wide-eyed about it. Mm. Um, and that was kind he of... He was. Kind That's of, mad, isn't it? Kind it? of worrying. Yeah, yeah. like, mate, um, this, is on, this is definitely your patch. But, <laughs> but then, to be fair to them, they really wanted to do something about it. Whereas, so you're telling them about it, and they're like, "I think we revealed oh, some Tarek, stuff." To thank them. you so much. I think we revealed. I think they had some some inkling, but in terms of scale, and and, and because, as, as you mentioned, these people didn't want people to know what they're doing, mm. because these are they're extracting huge profits out of the game, and the laws allow them to be, and they're invisible. all legal. Yeah, as long as so there's one one law, the one football law, which was FIFA's FIFA's law. The Premier League actually toughened its own rules up after the West Ham scandal. Mm-hmm. But there was the one global law which said um, you can have investors, etc., as long as they don't exert any influence over your transfer dealings or how you manage your club. How you can prove any of yeah. this, though? I mean, if you're in a situation where it's best for everybody, if a player moves on... Except maybe I mean, the player sure, being good at football. Player, it, you know, it's... How do you, how do you quantify it, as you say? Like, yeah. of course those people are going to want the player to, to move on, but how do you... How do you know that the influence isn't there? Just the, the very fact of that being true is surely an influence in itself. It's it's yeah. too intangible, isn't it? I guess that's the reason why the West Ham thing sticks in the mind because it was just so and overt. And it happened here. You know, and it happened and in it England, happened here. the biggest yeah, league yeah, in the world. Yeah. Where, true, it, true. where, you know, Britain is known for its, but for worse, for professionalism, isn't it? Around mm. the world, you know, rules, regulations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, cues. Cues, yeah. <laughs> Follow the rules here. Um, but yeah, so... It, it, it was a it was a big shock. Um, that said, since it's been outlawed, this thing, and there was a lot of hand wringing as well in, in some of the clubs. In, in one of the cases for it, or the people who will defend this, mm. they'll say, "Look, if we didn't have this, these investors, they allow us to keep the players at our clubs longer, so we can compete longer against the biggest clubs. So, if you're a Benfica, or a Sporting, or a, or a um, I don't know." Spanish club who isn't one of the big two mm. you say well this money allows us to keep them a bit longer because we can pay them with this investment yeah otherwise they'll go to those those sharks even quicker because we can't afford to keep them here this is extra investment yeah. we're getting 
Uh, again, I, I'm not sure I, I buy that. Um, but that is part of the thread of the story, isn't it? Because we mentioned earlier about the Atletico Madrid's... That was their business model. The business model. And they're, and in yours, and in the book, they're presented as kind of like they're plucky underdogs. Yeah. Trying yeah. to do something clever. Yeah. And that, Would, is that, am I reading that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, they were try, they, I'm just desperate for someone try, to root for it. They were trying book. to use this type of financial <laughs> alchemy to balance... Yeah. Balance the scales a little bit, but again, and you ultimately look, had success. Had success, but you look at them as well, and it's in the book there. They, they were, as far as European Union was concerned, tax cheats. So they didn't pay their um, the, the national tax. Mm. So there's millions of euros. So again, it's about football. Should be about you know a level playing field, I suppose. You know, if you're playing 11v, supposed to be 11v11, 11 and the other team's got 13 players on the pitch, it's kind of not fair. So if one team is paying all of its tax, tens of millions of pounds a season, or euros, whatever, and the other isn't, that means you can buy a new right yeah. back or left back or whatever, or a, or a change maker in, in, in the game. And I think this is the thing with football, because it's competitive, every team is trying to do better than at least one other team, right? Somewhere. Yeah, of course. And, and, and we'll go as far as it can to do it. So whatever the rules are, everyone is trying to bend it. Yeah, so Atletico Madrid did succeed using this system. But then I would say, are, are those relationships, what the right word is here, you know, are the curious relationships with a curious set of actors have allowed mm. this team to do quite well? So obviously with a book like this where you are um, shining a light on places that do not want light on them, how much does that affect the process of, of, of the writing as well? I mean, were, were there any legal threats? Were there, was there any pushback from the people that you were talking to or the people you were talking to about? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting also. It was, it's quite a dense subject as well. So we mm. had to try and find a way to decouple that kind of complex financial chicanery into um, a narrative that people might want to read um, because it is not only for, you know, finance professionals or people who work in football finance want it to be accessible yeah. to people. We had to try and sort of pass some of this down while making sure that it remains accurate and correct. And um, I have to say you succeeded at that as well. Mm. I found it very, very readable and also felt like, oh God, everyone's a millionaire. Should I not be at least a millionaire? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of rich people in football. There's a lot of money so people get attracted to it as well. And you can see why as mm. well. Um the yeah, in terms of the legals, yeah, we're we're talking about extremely wealthy people, and a lot of wealthy people don't like anything but extreme positive coverage. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I suppose most people don't really yeah. like anything yeah. but extreme positive coverage. It's, but it's, it's very hard, and a lot of them don't want to talk to you either, especially about how they made the money, uh, especially if they made their money this way. Uh, yeah. Given that it was quite an unpopular topic with football fans, because you know you say the word agent or to a, to a football supporter and you know what they're going to say I and mean, you were talk, we were talking before this like mention football transfers to a taxi driver or whatever and you know you get 5 minutes of people talking about these guys being you know corrupt thieves whatever you know yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a thing that really exercises the public um so we tried to be as careful as we could but even then yeah we had um, a couple of legal issues one gentleman in particular was very aggressive with his threats, using a uh, well-known London law firm that seems to base its business model on trying to sue journalists, oh. um, we 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 got we got through that in the end. But it isn't a nice experience. I wouldn't be the first journalist mm. to go through it. It's sort of part of the job, I suppose. Did you feel as though 
were you kind of driven by the like journalism feeling that like this was a good story and we've got to shine light into this? Or were you initially thinking, you know, this is pretty interesting and I reckon we could write a good story and bloody hell, I didn't expect it to be all this hassle. Yeah. No, it's, I both find it really fascinating. And I, again, I think we work well together as well. That's the other thing. If you're going to do something like this with another person, it's quite tough. We got on really well. I think we had complementary skills as well. And, you know, if you're not up for it, some point the other one picks you up as well um and it it wasn't it was a bit of the industry that i think we wanted to shine a light on as, as it were because every day you'll see hundreds of stories on this subject who's moving where how much mm. they're going for mm. people should know the mechanics behind this stuff and people should know that everything that might be out front isn't exactly as it seems this is the world's most popular sport. Seven billion dollars now in the a transfer year window is moving. Yeah, every year on transfers. When uh, we when we published, it was four. So in five years, less than five years, three billions has been added onto this thing, and there's people uh, making it, um, you know, a business model. Actors outside of football, um, and then you you're looking at buying and selling players, and we hear about fan-owned clubs and member clubs and, you know, can't we be more like Barcelona and all of this? The other thing you find, where I, through through writing this book, I, I kind of have gone the other way. I think someone needs to have something at stake in order for some of this bad stuff not to happen. Because if no one owns the team and everyone owns it, when money starts disappearing... No one cares enough, if you know what I mean. There's like hundred thousand people yeah. will lose a little bit, and there isn't there isn't that. It's easy to spend other people's money, as it were. And I, I've got a real kind of concern about this, about governing clubs with this with this model. Yeah, it could be tighter, but are they screwed? Like this, so much power in these figures called sporting directors, yeah, or the people who are in charge of transfers, and the what we found, the level of conflict, I don't want to name any names, obviously, but the level, levels of conflicts of interest and you see funky deals made that make no sense yeah. but for relationships. And mm. you see players moving to certain places where sporting directors have gone, etc. And it, it, it's not for football. It's not for the benefit of that team often. It benefits a few people and no one seems to care. Um, that's unfortunate. Wait, just to clarify that, because I it now sounds like that sounded to me like you were saying lots of people owning a football club doesn't work. But obviously, we come on to the European Super League. Yeah, a bit. In I, terms I, I of, don't mean it. Yeah, that's like fan ownership. The, well, the well, model. Remember, that's being yeah, I don't want to say fans because it's a funny word. That the, I was talking to someone about what the word fan means as well. This kind of member model, and I think in in its pure sense, of course, where everyone has a stake in it and everyone's equally invested in this thing, and only with a pure heart you're going to run this this team. But the problem is, wherever you have billions of dollars, euros, whatever, not everyone does have yeah. that. And there's people who will have more power than others within that system. Um, and with that model, you have this, this person called the sporting director. Mm. The relationship between these people and agents, I think, is way too cosy, and no one is policing this. However, if I or a group of investors or whoever owned the team. And again, I, it's good to be controversial. Maybe I'm being controversial here, and it's just for a debate. Yeah, in a perfect world, member-owned, fan-owned, brilliant. 
I would be all for it. But it isn't a perfect world. And we've seen so many examples of clubs that are members clubs. Look at Portugal, look at elsewhere, where they're left in financial ruin because someone's gone for an election to be the president, spent a ton of money they haven't gone, mm. got disappeared, and then the club is in dire straits. And Someone you, you only have problem. to look at Barcelona as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. You've got a billion euros of debt. And this is Barcelona. It's, it's, Barcelona will never go bust, even when it's bust as well, because yeah. and Real Madrid, all these teams are kind of too big to fail. So you have these characters will come in and you'll, you'll see an election and you say, right, do you remember um, uh, Barcelona when Beckham was the, 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 the totem for one of the candidates, when Aldinho was a totem for another one and they're, they're, they're going to try and bring them in? Beckham eventually went to, to Real Madrid. And it's, it's, all, it's all done kind of without a strategy, trying to basically appease a fan base, no long-term thinking... And then add the layer of the murkiness I'm talking about. I don't think, I don't think it's always the greatest model. It's, well, it's effectively very open to corruption, isn't it? In a way where not everyone involved actually even understands it's open to corruption because so many of these these third parties deliberately obfuscate everything they do. hundred percent. I just and there isn't anyone looking. Like yeah, maybe the press is looking. Um, and this goes to the heart of governance and regulations and things like that. No one cares enough to do anything. And we were talking before about other issues in the world. And you said, well, why is that happening? Why is this happening? Okay, you, you care a bit to get angry on Twitter, <laughs> but you're not going to do anything else. And I think that, that, that kind of lack of enforcement, you can have all these rules in football, so an industry full of rules. Mm. But and, it is, it, and angry people yeah, on Twitter. angry people on Twitter. But, but in, terms, in terms of enforcement, nothing really happens and we sort of go on. Um, and and this 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 stuff the stuff in the book is a part of part of the industry, I guess. All right, so let's get to a break now, and then perhaps when we come back, we'll find out, you know, what people should be getting angry about. Welcome back to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents with me and Jim. And today we're with Tarek Panja, who wrote Football's Secret Trade with his co-writer Alex Duff. And Tarek, before the break, we got on to the fact that we can't solve this, really. There's uh, all the things that you're talking about in the transfer window, all of the complexity, all of these people owning a little piece of footballers and a little, perhaps one of the suggestions that's been made in the wake of the European Super League is this idea that perhaps if everyone could own a bit of a football club, it would be a, a brave new world and everyone would you know, love the football club equally and work hard to make it do the right thing. But it sounds as though basically that's a load of crap. And I wanted to get your thoughts a bit more on the European Football League, the European Super League generally, because you started to talk about the three clubs who are still in it mm-hmm. and how this all feeds into the way that the tran- that all of these funds are allocated and how people rather than trying to condense what they what they spend they just try and increase their revenue in football year on year yeah i wouldn't say that i'm totally opposed to sort of fan or spectator member owned clubs or anything like that it, you kind of uh, need to know what you're asking for and need to define it a bit it all seems quite nebulous isn't it you know mm. let's get the fans what does that mean yeah. and how will it work in practice and from basic question what is a fan yeah. as well like this thing we haven't heard the fans for which fan the season ticket holder 
the guy in England, the guy in Malaysia. Mm. You know, I mean, there are some diehard fans of teams who are thousands of kilometres away. You know, as we're recording this today, Barcelona, for example, have changed their model or have um, said they could change their model for members. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, they have 140,000 odd socios, the people who own the club. And in order to be one, it's quite complicated. And most of them are in and around Catalonia. Mm. An overseas person would have to jump through a lot of hoops, doesn't matter how much they love the club. Now, probably because they're in a financial bind and they realise they've got millions of um, adherents all over the world, they're saying, like, we're going to make this easier and for, for you to be a member. And that's 185 euros a year. So you can imagine, you know, get a million of them, 185 million euros. Kind of Netflixing <laughs> themselves <laughs> almost. <laughs> Absolutely. And the world's changing a bit as well, you know, with technology and everything else, being a fan and you know, being engaged with your club, etc. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of think that the, the, the structure of the game or the way the game is, is run isn't fit for purpose anymore in the times we're living in. These, these organisations, FIFA or UEFA, even the Football Association, they were created to sort of codify rules and to to be in charge of an amateur sport, really, in the you know, from 100 years ago, whatever. And we, we kind of kept these committees, etc. And And now these are billion-dollar enterprises. Uh, UEFA is a really good example, one I've been looking at a lot since Super League and because of Super League, maybe before Super League as well. It, it's a funny organisation. It has a politically elected president, in, in Alexander Seferin or whoever's in this seat. And the only people who have a vote or have a say in who that person is, is 54 national football associations. So Andorra, you know, Liechtenstein, England, Germany. No one else really has a look in in terms of who the people running European football are. And then you look at the organisation and it's riddled with conflicts of interest that the, 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 by nature, by how it is, the structure. So I kind of divided it up into sort of three prongs. The one that we'll all see, the ones is the Champions League and the Euros that are about to start. That's an events company, isn't it? Or an mm. entertainment business or a mm. content business or whatever you want to call it these days, generating billions of euros through the sale of TV rights and, and sponsorship and marketing, etc. That is... So in order for that to function, you need to be selling the best product to whoever's buying it. So you want the best teams, the best players in that competition. That, for me, conflicts with the second arm that UEFA is, which is a regulator for European football. So the rule enforcer. Now, if, on the one hand, you want to sell the best players and the best teams to your broadcast partners, you'll be loath to sanction and punish any of those big actors. Mm. So we've never seen a big team punished in a way that I think is material for breaching rules, be they financial fair play, be they um, uh, um, racist chant, whatever it is, mm. you don't really see any meaningful punishment in that sense. So it's like the, so it's like UEFA is the headmaster and also the kind of naughtiest kid in the school. Yeah, it's like you're having these two, 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 and they completely conflict with each other. And then you've got a third arm, which feeds into the first bit of this elected president, all these organisations, UEFA, FIFA, all, both of those two, the reason for them to be is to grow the popularity of football. There's no God-given right that football is the most popular sport in the world. It's through happenstance, through 
the legacy of Britain in a way, but also through development work mm. of, of these organisations. So the other big arm is a de- it's a development organisation which dispenses billions of euros every four years to, to parts of Europe. Mm. And w- what happens is you go and give them to FAs who then vote for you in an election every four years. <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> so so yeah. what, why is some of the money being spent or why are tournaments being put in certain countries and not in other countries? It's, it's, it's inherently political. It's not, um, and it's rational in that sense if you see it as a political organisation, but it shouldn't be. Is it done for the benefit of football or is it done for the benefit of whoever's in power at the time, same as FIFA? same as the Asian uh, Football Confederation, whatever. Mm. It, th- these things need some external power to, yeah. to shake them up. The only time we saw it is when all those people got arrested in 2015. That's when football was really shaken, when the, the FBI oh, yeah. raided FIFA in Switzerland and, and we thought well, there was, this will herald a really big change, but it didn't change the structure. It sort of changed the people a little bit. Yeah, And, and whoever those people are, they're still stuck in the system. I, I think their behaviour is rational, given that's the system they're in. So the system needs to be taken down. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I'm really intrigued by, especially towards the end of the book, which which this is related to really, is that this process of third-party ownership that you're talking about has been regulated now by FIFA and the, the companies have to be clear about who owns them and players also can't sign for clubs for non-sporting reasons. And it looks towards the end, towards at the end of the book, the rules are there, but nothing's really changed. And, mm. you know, four years on from the book, has it has the rule change really had an impact, or or are these companies still operating as they were? They've they've had an impact and they've changed the way they operate. So the actors who are involved are still kind of around. Maybe not the taxi driver and the the kind of shoe shine guy, etc. But at the high level, just found another. They, they found another way of, of of doing it. One of the one of the most kind of obvious ways is the transfers can only be made between clubs and clubs. Is is like that's been one of the defined things. So what they've done. Is you you'll be an investor in a th- in a third club or a small club in in a jurisdiction cheap somewhere somewhere that's relatively cheap. Cyprus, there's been Cyprus, sometimes in Belgium, um, clubs where y- you'll see very strange transfers. Um, you'll see a player, for example, move from a club in Brazil to another club in Europe somewhere for maybe six days. And then may never set foot there, yeah. And then move again for like three, four times that amount of money. So these are almost like known as ghost transfers, ghost clubs. Mm. That that kind of uh, part of this carousel. And partly it's the fact of resource. These guys um, who are doing it, that's the only reason they exist. That's their business. So they're thinking about this stuff all day long with their lawyers, etc. Meanwhile, you know the people who are responsible for for kind of regulating this there's not hundreds of people yeah they also don't they're also not the police they're also you know they're just a, a sports organization so in terms of subpoena powers being able to look into people's bank accounts they can look into football bank accounts but but if you if you're an external party they can't come to you know your house and say right badge this is FIFA. Yeah. I demand to look in your drawers. As much as they would love as that. As <laughs> <laughs> That's what they all really want to be able to do, isn't it? it, it they, 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 can't, they can't do any of this stuff. So it, it, it's, it's, it's tricky. But again, you need to define it. And also, 
different parts of the world there's different business culture mm. so if if you know we're sitting here in, in in the uk where you know we've seen a lot of murky stuff here but the, sometimes in, in in other jurisdictions say south america etc it's not seen as being that 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 awful well it's a lifeline isn't it for a lot of those clubs they, they do need it they need to find money somehow and yeah. this is part of how that happens yeah but then the question would be why uh, why does the transfer market have to be the way it is we're saying they need it because they have to bind why because it's always been that way yeah and there's a kind of inertia we're making big change Mm. So, one of the one of the ways of regulating everything is why don't we look at the transfer market as a whole? Because rich people are always going to spend money and find a way of doing it. And there, there's been an issue. It's, it's for me. There's never been an era in in the history of this game where more talent has sat on the bench doing nothing. Mm. Mm. So everyone says, "Oh, you need two world class players in each position to do what? Why?" Because everyone else has, but that's not everyone. That's like, I don't know, 12 clubs mm. in Europe have two world-class players. That means every week there's a world-class player not playing football, right? Yes. And then you'll see all these other teams who are trying to keep up with spending money, etc. To, to Well, exactly. It's an arms playing. race, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't work. So maybe the, 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 the way of regulating some of this would be, why not limit the amount of transfers you do every year? Why not limit the amount of players you can register in your squad that aren't from your 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 own system? There are other things you can do yeah. that aren't necessarily um, about you know bang cash, stop bad money bad, mm. put a rule in. Da, da, da. The, the, the smarter people than us <laughs> are, 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 are you know they're, they're they're paid to do this stuff. Yeah. Tarek says that as we're both like rubbing our heads with kind of <laughs> mental exhaustion trying to figure this all out. Because I suppose, and in fact, as we we're talking today as well earlier, there was this uh, Andrea Agnelli has given out yeah. his latest. Uh, yes. view about matters and he said the Super League is not a coup but a desperate cry of alarm for a system that knowingly or not is heading towards insolvency now you could argue that that's a slightly you know the, the angle through which Juventus and those clubs that we've mentioned are looking at it slightly slightly cynical you could argue but it sounds as though from what you're saying that they maybe are on to something in terms of the idea of like whole scale change is is needed at the moment and some yeah. of these things you're suggesting don't look at Highly dissimilar to draft systems, salary caps, all that sort of stuff that we see in the US, uh, where our noble European Super League benefactors come from. It should, it, should, it, should all, it should all be on the table. It's, it's a good moment for a debate. Mm. And a debate should happen transparently and publicly. The thing with the Super League, it was so ugly that it was sort of cooked up behind the scenes that, you know, this, this game um, is a passion for Millions of people, maybe in a way it's too much. Like you know, guys, try and um, have a, like other things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you sit here at this studio and say that to yeah. us. No, no, but you know, you know what I mean. It, it just—it's so much feeling from from this game, and it kind of—it feels a bit horrible that you know, twelve people have gone in the back room and and, and yes. decided for you what's going to happen to to the game. I think they have a point in like there should be a conversation, and there maybe should be change about the the, the way we we watch the game the way it's organised, etc. But to the point, he said, you know, they're at the verge of financial Armageddon. It's partly their own fault. No one, no one had a gun to his head and said, yeah. Andrea, look, unless you, you come Ronaldo. into this room and sign Ronaldo, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to take you out. This is a, these are all choices. Yeah. And there, is a, there has been inflationary pressure, right? Um, and there's, there's no... I mean, this is a good... This is a good moment to record this podcast, actually. Who played in the Champions League final? You had the richest state-owned club 
and the richest um, individually owned club. Roman Abramovich probably the richest individual to own um, a football club still, I would say. You could argue that PSG is... On a parallel, I'd say Abu Dhabi's richer than than than, than maybe. Well, I'm not, not going to fight yeah, on either side, yeah, but you know what I'm but saying. But toe to toe, it could have been. Yeah. P- well, that it was the semi final. Yeah, so yeah. whoever won that semi final, the the um, you know the petrol derby or whatever it was. So ultimately, they proved that they were better off because they managed to make it to the Champions League yeah, final. So that's yeah. case closed for another year. El, El Gasico, <laughs> that's what it was, right? quite ahead oh of plucky little Bayern as well. Oh God! But but it does speak to the moment, right? Those with the real deep pockets. They got they got into the final in the year where where everyone else was bleeding reading and you know losing so much money even these big teams but <laughs> there's a reason as well though isn't it this inflationary pressure was brought to bear on the game by these clubs mm-hmm. the, the these that are sort of financed outside of football's money um, and no one really did anything now if I'm a Man City fan I'll be like oh you know bore off it's, it's our turn to be yeah. successful. What's your problem? I've what? been a supporter since we were in. Yeah, I went to Gillingham. <laughs> you know, I saw Paul Dickoff score the goal. You know, and, I, and yeah. they're probably right. You know, there is a feeling, um, but I get. I, I bet you, if one or two of them go home, it still probably doesn't sit right. That yeah, of this, course. This is how it's happened. Um, that said, you can't just have a way a system where because Manchester United are big, Barcelona are big, Juventus are big, they need to win everything and they do win everything mm. there has been that concentration of success you look through all those European leagues Agnelli for example he's one he would love to walk out of Serie A he almost openly talked about mm. it yeah. he's, 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 he's either he's ruined their league by winning all the time or his league has ruined itself by not being able to compete with them either way mm. he thinks Juventus has, has grown too big for, for, for that competition um, but it's, we've got, I feel like we've sleepwalked into some of this mm. Because you know, a few years ago, like you know, in the nineties, you know, not that long ago, is it? <laughs> I remember Panathinaikos or whatever being in semi final of the Champions League. Mm. You know, there, there was there was a mm. you know, I learned a lot of my geography as a kid from from these football matches. Yeah, of course, you know, United, Manchester United in Europe Cup Winners Cup nineteen ninety one, Honved or whoever. You know, yeah. <laughs> coming back from school, there, there were these games and these places. They were so, totally. so exotic. Non football fans are always astonished by United <laughs> flags as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, you know. Uh, if, let's take Barcelona, Real Madrid and Juventus, the three clubs still insisting that they're in the Super League and it's going to happen. They, you know, if they if they ruin themselves, you know, it's not really football's problem, is it? You know, they, they've, they're almost demanding a sort of proxy bailout by banking on being too big to fail and like just ignoring the, effectively ignoring there being consequences for them overspending. Um, but it's it's interesting because as you touched on, Early on, when we were speaking before we were in the studio, Tarek, when Chelsea and Man City and PSG came along and inflated all this, they ran towards that. They ran towards trying to compete with mm. that rather than go, hang on, this is us trying to compete with that is ruinous. We need to think about regulation here. And this. Uh, but there's no incentive for PSG in particular with Qatar backing to. Well, to but, care but, about but it, it has to come from FIFA and UEFA, doesn't it? The regulation has to come from elsewhere. But, they, but as thought, we know, they have better lawyers. Yeah, well, they thought PSG I mean, that is not UEFA. Yeah. Well, John, John Henry at Liverpool, for example, I think he openly talked about why he bought it. They thought they were in a regulatory space. Mm. They thought FFP was a serious thing, both domestically and, and internationally, and thought Liverpool would be well placed, etc. And and um, you know. They were wrong. To be clear, Manchester City went to CAS and were cleared. So 
they 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 they're fine. Yeah. Uh you know, devils in the detail perhaps. Um but your point to them bankrupting themselves. I I think it's not that because they'll always survive. Yeah. The the issue is this. Bankrupting they, the league. They I can't mean, they can't face not winning. Yeah. And and that I find very strange again. It's not so long ago that trophies were passed around a bit more. Yeah. But it's what, because it's an investment vehicle, isn't it? What gives them what what's happened to football where Barcelona finishing second is this enormous failure or or you know it's there's one cup, one league, one cup, one FA cup, one cup and you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Someone's going to win it, not everyone. Yeah. Let's like look at the Super League. Well, I think what do they want um you know 15 trophies so they can all lift one up at the end. I of think the so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's kind of a nonsense in 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 that sense and something's happened to the game. I think maybe we're part of the blame as well. I, I don't know why we kind of allowed success means the one who wins the the big cup and you spend and spend and you kind of lord it over everyone else and it's it's you've not had a successful season unless you've won three cups. Yeah. You know, that that mentality kind of needs to change. We kind of have to recalibrate the the relationship between the people and the game, media and the game. What success? I mean, the players are wonderful. I don't think we've ever lived in an era where we've seen this much talent. Yeah. Kind of in, enjoy the talent. Imagine if they were dispersed around different teams and imagine the competition we'll have rather than seeing, I don't know, a bunch of players sat on a bench yeah. thinking, oh God. That's why you look at Real Madrid having a clear out and you see the names in it, you think, God, that, the amount of talent there, that could, that could improve 10 teams. Uh, absolutely, but they won't be able to, that's the other thing, they won't be able to clear them out. And this is the stupidity of the, the game now. Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus, Inter Milan on the verge of absolute bankruptcy. They've mm-hmm. just won Serie A first time in 11 years. And they're, they are on the cusp if any team, any big team is shaky, it's Inter Milan who've just won the, the league. Now, they, the only way they're going to survive unless some miracle backer appears from, I don't know, another gas-rich country is a fire sale of, of, of players. But you're in a market now where there isn't a market. No, no one except two or three teams has got any money. Yeah. So you've got players sat on massive wages on the benches of these teams that they need Coutinho or whoever who they need to clear out, how are they going to do it? It sounds like an absolute mess and a nightmare. Well, it's the rich person superpower of turning money into more money, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, Tarek, thank you for trying to uh, elucidate all of these different... Uh, these waves of different complexity within football and for your your excellent book and for coming in to join us today. Yeah, well, I hope everyone's not too depressed after <laughs> no it's really really enlightening and I, I honestly cannot recommend the book enough uh, it it does such a good job of unpicking this and explaining it in a way that is is, is entertaining and, and informative as well and we didn't really touch on it but <sighs> no one saw Neymar's dad coming did they no. nobody was prepared for how good Neymar's dad would be at this stuff so that's that's something that you can get your, your teeth into if you, if you read the book yeah on the upside Neymar's dad's doing alright even though at the end of it we sit there feeling like <sighs> everything is interconnected and change really kind of needs to come um, guys thanks for listening to this episode of the book club get hold of football's secret trade by Tarek Panja and Alex Duff wherever you get your books we'll put a link to it on our socials and do get in touch with us on Twitter Tarek on Twitter what's your handle it's really complicated it's Tarek Panja difficult <laughs> 
clever. I'm at KVL Mason. I'm at Jim Campbell TFR. And we're, of course, at Football Ramble. Let us know what books we should read next and we'll catch you next time. This was a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creative Network.